welcome to this session of Parley at the Hindu. week we are speaking about the question of returnees from the islamic state uh, it's a debate that's been sparked by the hindu's own report on four kerala women who had traveled to afghanistan sometime between 2016 and 2018 to join the islamic state khorasan the isis's wing there afghan authorities want to return these women to india but the government has given no response as sources say security agencies have actually advised against taking them back given uh, the risk as well as the radicalization factor what are the international ramifications and the legalities around isis re- returnees as well as um, what other countries are doing in these matters with me former diplomat author and professor at the indian society of international law kp fabian and kabir taneja he's a fellow of the strategic studies program at the observer research foundation he's also the author of the isis peril the world's most feared terror group and its shadow on south asia ambassador fabian if i could start with you you've argued that no matter what the crime the indian government must take back these four women named aisha rafaela mariam and uh, uh, nimisha or fatima as well as their children tell us why couple of reasons thank you suhasini one is that uh, under the ipc indian penal code section 3 any citizen of india can be tried in india for any offense committed in india abroad or even in outer space okay so that's point number 1 second thing is that we hear from media reports not yet contradicted by the government in fact media reports carried by three four media were identical in substance so obviously they might have been briefed by the same person in the government that says that afghanistan wanted to deport them and that india has refused and it was also said that uh, india wants uh, afghanistan to try them and one more cause has been adduced uh, that is they will be such a grave threat to india's security now in plain english that is rubbish because these four women if uh, they are coming back to india they will be coming back in the custody of our security forces and they can be put to court and they can be held under custody till the court gives a verdict now while in custody they cannot be of any threat to the security of india and the last reason they have their families here now let me ask you suhasini when these reports came out did the government of india take the trouble to advise the families in kerala listen either these reports are true or they are not true and also as you know in this particular case nimisha i think her name Yes. her mother bindu was on asianet and she also said that there is a granddaughter who is 4 years old now what crime has she committed isn't it sensible for that child to be with the grandparents if the parents are not able to look after her so there is no reason for india standing in the way of their return when afghanistan asked for it can i quickly ask you really 
uh, what are the legalities around the citizenship? Because some have argued, and of course, most of this debate is being held on social media because, as you pointed out, the government has not on the record actually said what it plans to do. Even according to the story the Hindu did, the Afghan government does not yet know uh, what the Indian government plans to do when it comes to the case of these women. But the question some are asking is that if these women left India of their own volition and joined what they believed was uh, an Islamic caliphate, pledged allegiance to this separate caliphate, to, so to a separate country, uh, don't they in fact uh, lose their right to a, an Indian citizenship by acquiring this other notional citizenship? No. The right to Indian citizenship, you cannot take away from anyone. There are international treaties which say that, you know, you cannot uh, strip anyone of citizenship and make that person stateless. Let me draw your attention to Shamima Begum, a UK citizen who right. left UK at 15, if you remember. And uh, then after the Islamic State fell, the UK government said she cannot return and they stripped her of her citizenship. And the Court of Appeal in UK said the government was in the wrong. Then the government went to the Supreme Court and said there are national security reasons for the decision not to let her in. Well, national security reasons for not letting a girl of uh, probably she's 21 for letting her into England? Come on. There is something wrong with it. But, but, the Supreme Court said that, uh, well, she can contest the decision about the stripping of citizenship, but when she's in a position to do so. So you could see that how legally convoluted was the position taken by UK. All right. Uh, and don't forget, Sukhasini, mm -hmm. look at the passport which we are all carrying. Let me read it out to you. These are to request and require in the name of the President of India, of the Republic of India, all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely without let or hindrance and to afford him or her every assistance and protection of which he or she may stand in need. Now the passport you know, enables you to go out. Of course, you also need a visa or an agreement that there is no need for visa. Now, the same passport permits you to come back without a visa. Okay, so you're saying that there is no legal case under which uh, the government can actually uh, bar them from returning. Kabir Taneja, what about the national security question? Is there a national security or otherwise a risk from bringing back people who have been radicalized, who have been associated with a terror group, uh, and who have possibly been involved in some kind of uh, uh, terror attack in other countries. Is there a, a threat in bringing them back? Uh, thanks, Vahasani. Uh, I don't think there is like a threat in bringing them back. But the question that arises, and I think the question that even the state uh, would like a concrete answer to is what do you do with them? Right. And of course, uh, it's very easy to say, you know, the, they can go through the process in, in, in India through the uh, through the courts and uh, uh, they, uh, because, for example, the Islamic State is a banned organization in India and whatever the the uh, whatever the outcome of, of uh, those trials are, uh, you know, the, you, go, you go through it, basically. Uh, now, the problem here arises is, of course, 
that's a process that can be that can be initiated and so on and so forth but how do you estimate a, a person's radicalization right so we have seen this uh, this argument play out uh, time and time again in not just in india in europe and the us and canada and so many places with that have uh, or are experiencing this whole phenomenon of the foreign fighters who so to speak uh, is uh, you know for example in the uk they have uh, uh, robust deradicalization programs and some of these people who have gone through these programs have come out uh, after passing it officially and then conducted uh, acts of terror as well uh, while after getting a certification of sorts uh, from these government funded programs that okay fine they have been quote unquote deradicalized so there are a lot of like questions uh, uh that arise as far as national security goes of course the easy answer to this is that a state says look uh, we we uh, these people uh, took a choice and joined a terror organization as far as we are concerned uh, they are not our responsibility anymore now the legalities of this argument could be completely different as well as uh, ambassador fabian also quoted the um, the the uk case uh so it's uh, you know it's it's a double edged sword as far as the national security question is concerned there's no easy answer to it it ultimately comes down to what a state's policy towards uh, foreign fighters in general is and if it is ad hoc if it's a case to case basis then it gives a lot of uh, leverage to the state to uh, to decide uh, what kind of action it would like to take uh, in, you know to, towards that particular case no but in a sense mr tanaja i'm i'm trying to ask the question if somebody is part of what is seen as a transnational threat right that's what international terrorism is and particularly when you look at groups uh, like uh, the islamic state it is a it considers itself above nationalities uh, at that point people who have pledged themselves to a transnational organization are they in effect less national if you like uh, and therefore can they be barred uh look i again this uh, uh, I, this can be divided into a uh, sort of two way question right is it legally or is it ethically and morally uh, i ethically and morally i well, personally believe that they should be allowed to come back and tried as indian citizens by an indian court because if they have joined an organization such as islamic state which is banned in india they can be tried uh, uh, as per indian laws for joining a banned organization and we saw this happen with uh, someone like arif majid who was brought back right. uh, by india in 2014 15 went through the trial and is now out on bail because the court said well it's been 6 7 years which since the case is going it's very difficult for the prosecution to come up with concrete evidence because of all the acts that were committed were outside india's geography uh, uh, uh so after serving 6 to 7 years uh, as as under trial uh, he was given bail because according to the court that he had served uh, his time uh, so to speak while this trial was happening right in fact uh, now you know yeah go ahead no as i said you know so you can argue whether that case was a successful case of of uh, of uh, uh, trying uh, someone who had joined a banned organization like the islamic state outside or was that did that case actually fall out and despite the the, uh, the despite the person spending 6 to 7 years in prison so it's 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 not easy to answer right and because india does not have a cohesive policy towards uh, the very sort of idea of a foreign fighter Uh, because we've not had those many cases right so even from the islamic state case perspective there are not that many uh, it's it's at the moment it's easy for 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 the state to uh, uh, approach them on an ad hoc basis so in in the case of arif majid he was brought back 
while these uh, women in Afghanistan are being said, no, look, you did it by choice and you, you, we are not responsible for you anymore. Right. So certainly there is uh, some kind of contradiction in that response. Uh, Ambassador Fabian, do you have any thoughts about this question of people who pledge themselves to a transnational organization versus, uh, you know, giving up their nationality? Well, let me put it this way. Young people, some of them get brainwashed. Okay, that is how I look at it. And to say that they should be condemned forever just because they got brainwashed, no, that is not the correct approach. Even if uh, these, these particular young women remain radicalized even now, which again is yet to be proved, eh? we are just assuming. Even if they remain radicalized, we as a state have a duty to get them back and de-radicalize them. And to argue that in Europe there have been cases where people who are brought back and the state thought they had been re-radicalized and still they committed something, well, it's a good argument, but not strong enough. And let me also bring to your notice, 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 13.2, everyone has a right to leave any country, including his own, and to return to his country. Then ICCPR, that is International Covenant on, um, you know, Civil and Political Rights, 12.4. No one shall be arbitrarily deprived of the right to enter his own country. You see? So but these are all... Opinion, sorry to cut in. May I just ask, doesn't the ISIS example uh, actually merit a different approach? I ask this because, you know, you spoke about the fact that somebody might be brainwashed, somebody might be radicalized. We're talking about people who have taken part in some very, very brutal crimes. Uh, the pictures that we saw coming out of the Islamic State, uh, you know, shook the world's soul. People being uh, drowned alive, people being burnt alive, sexual slavery of uh, the Yazidi women, uh, the fact that people were killed uh, indiscriminately there in Raqqa. In fact, uh, actually, there are thousands. It's not just uh, Indian ISIS recruits. In fact, Indian ISIS recruits, which I want to speak about, were perhaps the smallest per capita. But um, uh, but there have been recruits from all over the world. My question really is, when you come to a threat like the one that Islamic State posed at, it, at the height of its brutality, is there a, a case for a different approach? I think there is a case for a different approach in the sense that uh, we should always stick to legality and morality. And these four women cannot be any threat to India. Let me make that point very clear. About 6,000 left European Union, you right. see, whereas from India, how many uh, go there? So if Indian state cannot handle these four people, no, I do not accept that argument. Okay. And let me ask once more a question to you. What happens to that four-year-old girl and that too in Afghanistan where there is every likelihood of the Taliban's coming back? The state has a responsibility to its citizens. That is absolutely clear. And the state cannot wash off its responsibility. Um, Mr. Taneja, you actually have documented so much of the ISIS threat, particularly the ISIS threat uh, in India. Do you think that the ISIS example, the kind of brutality uh, I've been referring to, merits any kind of a difference in approach? Uh, look, it's very difficult to say that. And let me just, uh, you know, as far as approaches go, uh, if you see the responses of, of the European countries, for example, I think there has been a slight uh, 
slight uh, deviation from uh, you know how they dealt with for example when when fighters from europe uh, in much smaller numbers went and joined the mujahideen uh, to fight the soviet union in afghanistan you know all those years back but i i you know it's uh, it's i mean it's a very difficult question to to answer because legally maybe unless you have a constitutional or legislative change uh, on uh, foreign fighters on how you deal with your citizens joining uh, joining uh, you know uh, uh, these kind of groups abroad uh, i don't think there is a, there's a there's a big option to change per se i mean you can't change based on opinion but if there is a, a legislative a, a different legislative approach that uh, that uh, you know identifies and defines foreign fighters quite differently than just a normal criminal who has committed an act of terror in india within the indian borders or within the ipc uh, you can't really uh, differentiate right so uh, and we have seen that we've seen countries in europe struggle with this let me just very quickly discuss something called the alhol camp in northern syria where a lot of these foreign fighters mm -hmm. are currently hold up uh, uh, most of them from europe because the european countries don't have a legitimized system in place yet to to uh, to take them back and of course it becomes you know it's not just a legal question it's a political question of the host country as well there is a lot of pushback by society and political sort of dispensations within the countries to not allow these fighters to come back because they usually you know how it used to work at least in 2014 to 16 during the peak time when a lot of these fighters went uh, you know they would land up in these countries they would uh, surrender their passports the passports would be destroyed and then they would quote unquote become the become uh, the legitimate citizens of the so called islamic state which is not a real state right but still you lose your papers mm -hmm. so this uh, a state uh, can say well they don't have their passports and we can't prove they are our citizens anymore and we've seen europe some of the european countries come out with these arguments which is why the alhol camp now has like hosts a lot of foreign fighters and has actually become a, a problematic Uh, uh area because not just because of the number of refugees there but because the, the because the ideology of the islamic state still festers right so because nothing has been done so uh, it's uh, what i'm just trying to you know say is like you know legalities morality and all uh, is all fine but unless there is a legislative change on how you define and and deal with people who have gone abroad to fight or join a terror organization such as islamic state or al qaeda and so on and so forth it becomes very hard to actually bring them to task uh, once they are back in fact the problem you're referring to is much larger because uh, take a look at some of the numbers uh, uh, you know frontline pbs documentary actually found 40000 such fighters who had joined the islamic state from 81 countries uh, those 81 countries included of course neighboring turkey tunisia but also Russia, Saudi Arabia, uh, many European countries, uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, France, Germany, <clears throat> Belgium, and all the rest, um, and and each of them, as you said, has been actually quite reluctant to take uh, these fighters back. Uh, so my 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 question would be, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Taneja, Ambassador Fabian brought up a point, which is. this group of women and these we should make the point that they got as far as afghanistan they didn't go to syria it's a different branch that they were a part of um these represent a very small number there are about four uh in all in fact i remember a paper of yours on the influence of isis in india in all an estimated number of actual indians who went over joint isis and either died or came back uh, was i think i think uh, between 100 and 300 was the estimate 
Um, so my, my question to you is, uh, in a different sense, was India somehow immune to this kind of uh, broad-based uh, broad radicalization when you compare the numbers per capita uh, to other countries like the ones I just mentioned? And in fact, would there be a case for a de-radicalization program as a result working better in India? Uh, see, that's a very loaded question as well. Uh, I don't, uh, I mean, it's difficult to say because let's say, for, let me take the second part first and talk about the de-radicalization de program. There are Indian states that have de-radicalization programs. Right now, we exactly, I mean, I've done research on this. We exactly don't know what the, you know, start to finish blueprint of these programs is. But uh, uh, I would question sort of, uh, you know, uh, of the of the final legitimacy of when people come out from this program as quote unquote de-radicalized, you know, because it's very difficult to say. We've seen this in the UK before that people who have come out of these programs still have committed acts of terror. And even if that happens one out of 30, it still becomes very difficult to actually sell these programs as something that should be invested in uh, both politically and, and, and security-wise to both the people and the political systems. So it's... Uh, no, it's difficult to say. Now, let me just go back very quickly to the Ari Majid case in 2014-15, if I remember correctly. Now, this person was brought he, back. He received and then made... bail this year in February. Right, exactly. And now, this person was brought back, but also made into an example of what not to do. So he was used or his case was used as a counter narrative. So there was a reason why, uh, you know, I I India actually managed to bring this person back and then said, okay, look, there were multiple stories all across the media that, you know, they treated me shabbily, they treat Indians shabbily, there's racism within the Islamic State, they made me clean toilets, fix Wi-Fi's, I never fought, those kind of things. So, you know, th that was a, that, that till a certain level was a counter narrative as well. Now the the thing with the with the Afghan case is it it's you know it it also becomes a very sort of uh, political thing between states right so you uh, the ISKP has a much different uh, 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 sorry IS Khorasan in Afghanistan has a much different structure to what the Islamic State in Syria and, Syria and Iraq had the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq was a very homogeneous singular organization in Afghanistan it's a multi, it's a hotpot of multiple entities. So uh, ultimately, who, uh, ultimately, who did they fight for? How were they radicalized? Who did they talk to even when they were not in Afghanistan but still made their way there? It's, it remains to be ascertained. So if, if they've managed to do that, uh, uh, or uh, you know, if they've not managed to do that, I think that's a very important question here. If they've managed to do that, I, th I think they would have been brought back and gone through the, uh, gone through the system. But if they still have doubts, uh, of of what exactly happened there and so on and so forth. Maybe they 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 are a little hesitant to commit to bringing them back and putting them through a trial that may not actually implicate them for being part of the ISKP. All right, uh, Ambassador Fabian. Uh, of course, we have with in you uh, the the person who arranged what is seen as the world's biggest evacuation program of. Uh, uh, of uh, citizens, of Indian citizens back from Kuwait during the first Gulf War. Uh, so I do want to ask you a little about the role of diplomacy in such cases. How do you decide? I mean, what is the importance of recognizing Indian citizens, ensuring that uh, they A, receive consular service, regardless of you know whether they're just escaping from violence or whether they are actually perpetrating the violence? What is the role of diplomacy here? 
Well, uh, let me put it. You are talking about. Uh, you are not talking about the evacuation. You are talking. Well, I'm asking general... you that what what is the importance? Because I you uh, I was referring to the fact that of course you were responsible for the world's largest evacuation of uh, Indian citizens from uh, uh, from the Gulf at one point. Yes, we took a decision. The government of the day took a decision that we shall evacuate all our nationals from Kuwait and Iraq, and we were not going to look into any other matter except their holding the citizenship. That's point number one. Point number two: that since it is relevant, I am mentioning it. We evacuated them without charging them any uh, any fee for you know the air ticket. uh this is in contrast with what has happened recently now coming to this particular question we live you know all of us should respect international law now it is absolutely clear that afghanistan has right uh, every right under international law to deport them you know these four indian women and uh, a couple of other people you know the n- numbers have been mentioned in various reports right. now if afghanistan has the right to deport where do they deport them to they have indian passports so if you respect afghanistan's right to deport them it follows that you have to say that india has an obligation to accept them all right um and 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 mr taneja i i do want to ask uh, not just about the indian experience but the international one in terms of isis recruits in particular who have been uh, who have been taken back by their countries is there a study now on what kind of uh, what kind of record they have when they go back to their home countries in terms of whether they carried out any more violence uh, are there actually um, studies of that uh i they i haven't come across many studies per se but uh, let me just uh, uh, highlight the fact that uh, a lot of the people uh, isis recruits that went and joined the group in syria and iraq who have gone back to their home countries are largely from central asian states so right it's the central asian states who have had experience with dealing with returning fighters uh, through the uh, through the uh, i mean the chechenian war the bosnian war Uh, and uh, the the afghan war against the soviets they have had experience on how to deal with them now exactly what happens or whether they have integration programs whether they are tried in central asian countries how it goes i'm not particularly sure because this there, there is research but there is limited research because it has it's a recent phenomenon so in the past one one and a half year only have the central asian states started to take back a number of these of these recruits uh, the others Uh, i mean i'm sure there are like uh, a few cases here and there for posterity's sake but majority of the european fighters who who came to syria and iraq and joined the islamic state still remain either in syria and iraq or in the refugee camps such as el hol uh, in northern syria and have actually not gone back because there remains uh, 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 a largely unclear uh, uh, method uh, by the european countries on how to deal with them specifically those people who have no documents anymore right and have no paperwork anymore uh, uh who uh, uh, it was very common back then to you know uh, give up your uh, documents on borders of certain countries before you stepped into syria and iraq and joined the islamic state so you are you 
quote unquote technically you, you know from the st one state's perspective stateless so they can they'll say oh, well, we can't take you back unless you prove that you were actually uh, from xyz country uh, so you know these are the sort of uh, uh, um, i mean the, there are thousands of these of these foreign fighters still stuck in these kind of limbos but central asia is one place where they have started taking them back uh, in in decent numbers but what happens later on is is, is still is still a, a bit of a gray area all right um and finally if i if i could ask you ambassador fabian there is uh, now many more um, sort of questions about international law over this as um, mr taneja pointed out what if they become stateless citizens what if they don't have uh, uh, any papers from any country is there actually a, a case uh, for them to be made at the icj france has in fact made the opposite that it wants a law really for responsible uh, uh, you know citizenship to to also be brought about uh, what is the situation at the icj when it comes to bringing back returnees well i do not know whether icj anyone will go to the icj but uh, talking about statelessness uh, uh, you know in the case of shamima begum it is my view that it wouldn't have happened such a decision would not have been made if she were not uh, from bangladesh or another country of that nature if she were born to white parents it would not have happened secondly even under the british law you cannot make a strip a person of citizenship if as a consequence of that that person becomes stateless so the uk maintained that oh, she can have bangladeshi citizenship but bangladesh has already declared that there is no question of her getting bangladeshi citizenship because she was born in the united kingdom so in other words uk has violated its own law i think it is necessary to look at these matters not only in terms of the law which you know always evolving sometimes behind the reality also with what is called humanity if we cannot look at young people who made a big mistake and if you want to condemn them forever well i do not think we are we are behaving humanely so it's an inhuman approach well which uh, i'm sorry to say is most uh, distressing okay um mr taneja do you have any thoughts on that because of course you study the acts of terrorists and and ambassador fabian's point is really that even regardless of what they might be accused of uh, they have to be treated by a state in a humane fashion uh, do you think Uh, the difference between other crimes and terrorism is something that still needs to be uh, you know made or do you think the same laws will apply no i think there there should be a differentiation over, over the graveness of the crime and of course there should be differentiation where the crime has been committed and how do you deal with it because it's very easy for right now you know it's uh, when you when it comes to foreign fighters it's not just about the law that comes into play the, the security comes into play the legality comes into play and, and politics comes into play both foreign policy and domestic politics and it all gets entangled into that we saw the shamima begum case became a whole sort of you know uh, 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 an event in itself and there are thousands of such uh, people like shamima begum still stuck in 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 various camps around around the middle east now you know earlier of course uh, when we saw foreign fighters coming in and out of let's say you know the Af afghanistan pakistan region during the during the soviet war uh, there was not a big crisis at that time because the arab states would readily take them back 
because majority of the of the fighters were coming from a uh, blessing of a political islam system that you go and you fight uh, uh, for islam against the soviets against the communists so you know at that time not, none of these debates were formulated and we've never had droves of people from foreign lands joining al qaeda for example whether it be pre 911 or post 911 this was sort of the first time where there was a sort of influx specifically from europe uh, uh, that saw uh, uh, this kind of uh, an event take place and th and there was chaos and confusion both from security point of view from a political point of view and a legal point of view so i think it would be from i mean and and there are already debates going on now that how do you uh, how do you treat people such as uh, 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 those the, that we're talking about today joined Islamic State and now would want to come back and say they've made a mistake and so on and so forth. So I think it's going to take a little time. The, the problem, of course, is the people who are currently stuck in this rut uh, are uh, facing the brunt of, uh, of, uh, of, of a pushback against both uh, a legal point of view and a security point of view. Uh, but there are not, even going forward, there are not going to be any easy answers. I still believe... Fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of these guys who have made this decision of joining these kind of groups are uh, going to face a lot of uh, uh, pushback from the very states that they've come from. Sure. And we should make the point that uh, these four women who are in contention in Afghanistan, Afghanistan doesn't actually want to charge them at present. Their husbands have died, but these women are accused of certainly propagating uh, the ISIS, uh, the Islamic State ideology. I'm going to have to leave it there, but this has been a very, very interesting parlay. Uh, it does seem to me that the consensus is that regardless of what happens, Indian citizens must be allowed to come back if they have to hold trial here. Uh, but it is necessary that one is cognizant of uh, the risks that that brings, as well as what the international thinking of this is. Uh, Kabir Taneja, Ambassador KP Fabian, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Thank you, Suhasini. Thank you, Suhasini.